Hello, I'm your host Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Banterflix podcast. So this edition of our podcast is the second part of our two-part Edinburgh International Film Festival special as we continue to showcase some of the high-profile guests who attended this year's programme. So in this podcast you'll hear Irish filmmaker Anthony Byrne talking about In Darkness, Saudi Arabian filmmaker Hafa Al-Mansur talking about Mary Shelley. I'll be speaking with writer-director Adam Morse about Lucid along with the film's leading man Laurie Calvert and we'll wrap up as I talk to Stephen Moyer and Anna Paquin about The Parting Glass. So first up is my interview with Irish filmmaker Anthony Byrne who was attending this year's festival to take part in a gala screening of his latest feature In Darkness which received its UK premiere within this year's programme. Uh, Anthony co-wrote the film with his fiancée Natalie Dormer and I caught up with him to talk about what it was like working on the feature. Did you know Veronica well? No, we were just neighbours. She was always kind to me. She was a very troubled young woman. It's been difficult between us towards the end of her life. She asked me to play that piece for you this evening. She said you used to hum it to her when she was a little girl. So I'm joined by Anthony Byrne, the director and co-writer of In Darkness, which is screening here in the Edinburgh Film Festival. Hello to Anthony. How are you finding your time here in Edinburgh so far? Uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, it's lovely to be here. It's um, a film festival like the Edinburgh Film Festival, which is an A-list festival, is really important um, because it legitimises your film essentially in the eyes of the public and the audience the wider audience um, so it's really important to be here it's also just great to be in Edinburgh the weather is amazing and I wish I was staying longer but I have to go back for work unfortunately bills need to be paid um, tell me about In Darkness tell me about the feature because you will be the best person to, to tell us what it is about to an extent without getting into spoilers uh, okay no spoilers In Darkness is a psychological thriller about a blind musician who bears witness to a murder in the apartment above her and it folds in on a path of revenge that she is on herself. Now, I'm curious about the genesis of this because you're directing, you're co-writing, you're co-writing with your fiancé, Natalie Dormer. So I'm intrigued to see about that process you went down. So tell me about the acorn of an idea that formed the genesis of this feature and then how it kind of unpacked from there and then at what point Natalie stepped in I was editing a film in London I wasn't living in London I was just in a short term letting place while I was posting this film Um, wasn't having a great time realised that the building that I'd been in for a couple of months I had never seen another single person in this building not in the lobby, in the lift, in the corridors, nothing but late at night this woman would come home and she lived in the apartment above mine and she never took her high heels off I don't know why and she'd click clack around the place and the geography and layout was the same as my apartment so I'd know roughly where she was and um, this all sounds really shady but I would <laughs> We've all been there to, Yeah, exactly I would start to kind of build a, a, a kind of narrative around this woman 
and that was the germ of the idea. Um, and it sort of expanded out from there. In a sense, I was blind. It's my own fear of, of blindness or being blind. Um, so the protagonist became uh, blind. And I have always loved um, thrillers, psychological thrillers, revenge thrillers. And myself and Nat love that genre. And so at home, we would watch those kinds of movies. Um, I had started working with a couple of other writers and was talking to them about you know building out the story but it never really clicked or gelled I wasn't happy with um, with where it was going I was becoming very frustrated Nat was always privy to those conversations uh, probably rather annoyingly for her but she was also at a particular place in her career this is going back nine years or so um, where she was just being offered roles that weren't exciting to her or moving the needle or getting her up the ladder um, and so I said to her one day why don't you write this with me you know about the character you know about the story you know you love the genre and she just hadn't really considered it before but I'd pointed out that she'd read about 300 scripts uh, most of which were crap and she understood structure you know unconsciously so once we sat down and we started talking about it and we started breaking the beats and breaking the structure and we put it up on the wall, we had these three A1 boards, like the three acts, and we had a timeline and each character was color-coded and it looked kind of amazing on the wall in our spare bedroom. And we, we had a lot of fun then uh, working it through. And we'd go, we went away on a holiday and that's uh, to Malta and we... Uh, I remember, I remember getting a lot of the film down there um, in terms of the, the story and the structure and everything being worked out. What I'm intrigued by is then, is there a democracy in that writing <laughs> partnership? Do you, do you, do you, do you have, a, do either of you have vetoes or what way did you, did you work through that process of, to watch someone who, who, who steps in, who was privy to all those conversations, and then at the point where she stepped in and said, well, why don't we try this, or why don't you try that? You've kind of talked about structure. I mean, was there a concept between the two of you as, as a partnership working on the idea, the concept, the evolution, and then kind of sitting, breaking it down to the bare bones of dialogue and things like that? The only thing that really existed before Nat came on was that there was a, a blind uh, piano player called Sophia who hears a murder that takes place in the apartment above there was nothing else really so everything else was built out from that um, yeah it was, it was incredibly collaborative uh, we'd bad ideas back and forth to each other um, nothing was ever off the table and we we were hard on each other we wouldn't let each other get away with anything because there's a lot of times writers are the they're the worst for letting themselves off the hook, right? Um, I don't know if that's what you do as well, but if I'm writing, you're writing a scene, you go, you know in your heart of hearts that it doesn't work. It's not right, but, but it's still, you've got two pages that you don't want to throw away, so you're like, that's oh, fine, I'll put it in. And so we would never do that. And so we would always, um, you know, hold each other's feet to the fire. Um, sometimes that was easy, sometimes it was harder uh, to do but always worthwhile because you ended up with a better scene as a result of it we also then had an amazing uh, creative team uh, of producers around us uh, at 42 in London um, 
and my agent was on it from the very, very beginning. So he read every single draft and was hugely supportive at a time when nobody was reading it and we couldn't get anybody to read it um, or didn't really know anybody like other writers uh, that we could call up. Um, so it was, it was a very collaborative process uh, uh, throughout. I was reading in the notes, now you cited quite possibly one of my favourite films of all time, The Conversation, as one of the kind of, and it's such a film that, that, that plays a big part of the, the sound, and even particularly the score, I mean the score of that film is fantastic, I know you've also mentioned uh, Blowout and, and Hitchcockian kind of London and that kind of that Hitchcockian thriller, and you've touched on that originally. Mm. Um, for you, like, I mean, what are the films, like, for, on that, I mean, when you set out visually to map this out, from, from taking the writing then to kind of visualising it, then working with your DOP, mm. did you then kind of come back to those films for visual imprints as well, for visual inspiration and this, the style of this feature? We, I never actually sat down and watched movies. I know a lot of directors do that, or you read that they'd, they'd organise screenings for the HODs and stuff like that. We never did that. We did have... Um, or rather, I had like visual references of films, but I never sat down with Sai uh, or Sonia, the designer, and watched those. It was basically curated by me. Um, there was a very specific location brief um, that was all about going back to like the Hitchcock London, um, the Jules Dassin London. I'm from Dublin, so I'm not from London, so I have a different outlook or take on London to me and in terms of film it was always the old red brick buildings and um, I've never really been interested in the steel and glass London which is sort of what you see mostly Everyone. now and in, in, in anything um, or council estates um, but I had done that in Ireland um, uh, so this was very uh, very much um, based on finding locations and showing uh, an older side of London that has sort of, that its DNA is in those old thrillers, but it's kind of been lost somewhere along the way and we just don't see them anymore. And so that was really important to me. The apartment building, which you'll see in the movie, is a huge um, character almost in the film. So that became uh, a cornerstone. We needed to kind of crack that. Visually then, everything builds out from there. It was always going to be uh, a little nod to Polanski, a little nod to Hitchcock, a little nod to De Palma, um, because they're really important directors, uh, certainly for me, um, uh, at different points in my life. Hitchcock, always just go back to Hitchcock. He's just, uh, he's a master. And also, we in the industry talk about Hitchcock and we all know him and know his movies but there's a whole generation of people that don't know him and it's not going to take an awfully long time before Hitchcock is kind of forgotten and you talk to some 15 or 18 year old and go have you ever seen Psycho and they go I don't know what that is or do you know Hitchcock and they'd be like no can I eat it it's like you know is that a band it's like nobody you know that that's sort of being forgotten already uh, which is a great shame um, and not that I'm going to be uh, saving his, his name, but it was important to me, certainly, to present something to a, a contemporary audience that kind of borrows from the master. Um, uh, and De Palma is obviously a huge influence as well. Blowout, as you mentioned, for sound, the conversation for sound. 
these were all movies that we would watch at home and discuss and sort of geek out over, really. Yeah, I totally agree. We at Bandaflix, you know, we geek out as best as, <laughs> as, as the rest of them. But, I mean, for you, like me, what is it draws you to those, those directors' work when you can? So when you, what is it for you? I know we've kind of touched on that. But what is it draws you to the Hitchcockian thriller, to the work of De Palma? What is it about those features that draw you in? I, I think specifically uh, movement about a visual grammar that they were so confident with the camera. Um, I think TV, a lot of TV is, is quite uh, pedestrian in the way it's shot. You're not even shooting it, you're covering it. Um, it's really dull. Um, they always knew, they, you could always tell there was a voice, you know, if you watch a De Palma movie, he's made a lot of great movies, but he's made a lot of terrible movies too, but he's made, but every one, you can get, you, you go, you know, he really goes for it, you know, you can't deny that, um, they don't always work, but they're always worth watching, Hitchcock, the way he moved the camera, I often think about, if he could, if he, if he was able to shoot digitally and have those small cameras, what kind of shots he would come up with, or the camera movement that he would come up with, especially when you look at rope. Um, uh, Coppola as well, those great directors of photography as well. That was the thing with Sai, it was like constantly pushing Sai to kind of keep it low level, keep it li um, low lighting. Um, look at Gordon Willis. Um, any any of those things, but there's there's a, there's a lot of the craft in that I think is is being forgotten. I think we're be, we're beginning to kind of get it back with certain directors in TV who who are able to author a series or a season of something, and and you can see that voice. But there's not a lot of De Palmas out there. Um, I hope he makes another um, movie before he passes on. But um, I think to answer the question, it's movement and. Um, and a fluidity of movement, and that's what I like. And I'm very front-footed with the camera myself. I like to operate the camera um, and move with it. I'm intrigued then what your relationship is then with your DOP on this feature. You know, how do, I mean, you're, you're clearly pushing him to, and clearly you have an idea of what you want in your head. So what was that relationship like on In Darkness? We had worked on Ripper Street, that was the first thing I'd met him on, and we clicked straight away. I was actually looking for a director of photography that I could build a relationship with, that we could go on and create a body of work. Um, and Sai is that kind of great creative partner because he wants to push himself, he wants to be pushed creatively. Um, we have a great vibe together. We we. We speak the same language visually. Um, I use uh, a stills camera when I'm blocking scenes and I oft, often shoot the scenes, I would shoot the shots, um, and then would show them to Sai. Sai would come up with suggestions or ideas. Um, I know an awful lot about camera, I know all the lenses, the different systems, so we can have those conversations and, and, that, and we can have that dialogue. Um, and then once once I've got the shot down, I let Sai go and light it and do what he wants to do. Um, and that's really the kind of brief that, we, uh, uh, that we've maintained. And we've just done a three-part drama uh, that we finished a short while ago, and he's coming to do uh, Peaky Blinders. Um, 
in September. That's the next thing we're doing together. How do you find that difference of work? Because I suppose in many ways it's very much the same working for TV and working for a project like this, a feature film. Like TV, you're working sometimes as part of a bigger piece or a small part of the puzzle. With a feature, this is you start to finish. Do you find yourself, do you find yourself consciously thinking about that, of, of the difference of, of working? Because I think this was shot in like 25 days in darkness. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for you, what's that compared to, say, in a, a turnaround for working on TV? Well, I, I was asked that not too long ago, and I, I said you should ask the producers, because the producers, film producers, indie film producers specifically, work with first-time directors or second-time directors who may have not directed something for four or five years while they were trying to get their movie made. And so they don't have that, that level of craft or that level of knowledge where having directed television for 10 years constantly, uh, over and over and over, um, prepping, shooting, posting, prepping, shooting, posting, um, and often overlapping, and then writing um, this... Uh, you're kind of you're in it you know there's a kind of fluidity and um, um, frequency that you're operating at so that when you are, when you do step onto a set it's almost like second nature and there's there's also an instinct um, and I know that I have that instinct I know that Sai has that instinct uh, lots of people don't have that instinct and it's very hard or it comes harder for them to um, to find the, the scene or find the shot um, I find it quite easy to step onto a set or work with with actors in a scene and find the scene, find where the camera needs to be, and figure it out. Um, but I I think it's a combination of all of those elements essentially. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we shall we shall leave it there, Anthony. Mm. Good luck with the. Uh, this evening at the gala and good luck with the the feature in the future thank you and good luck with your future endeavours thank you thank you very much so that's my interview with Anthony about In Darkness the film is now in general release and available to purchase through VOD services now but we'll move on now as I caught up with Saudi Arabian filmmaker Hafa Al-Mansur to talk about Mary Shelley did you finish it? yes it chilled me to the bone. It's good to enjoy a ghost story now and then. We both know this is no ghost story. I've never read such a perfect encapsulation of what it feels to be abandoned. So that's a clip of Mary Shelley, which is screening here at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. And I'm joined now by the film's director, Hafa Al-Mansur. I really hope I have got that correct. Mm-hmm. Hafa, um, the film itself really needs no introduction. This is a, a biopic, uh, or the, the premises of a biopic of Mary Shelley. Tell me, how did you come to be involved with this project? Well, um, well, thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, they sent me the script. My agent sent me the script and I, re- I started reading it. And I was like, do they know I'm from Saudi Arabia? <laughs> because it is English and it's period. Um, but when I read it, it was amazing how much I had sympathized with the story. Because it is a coming of age of story of a young woman who's trying to find her voice when England was conservative at the time, 200 years ago. It's by no means as conservative as Saudi Arabia. But still, women were expected to be in a certain way and act in a certain way. So I felt directly, con- I connected with the, with the character, and that is what unlocked everything for me. 
um, I felt like um, the character is just like uh, a wonderful, um, has wonderful potential to bring in. And I did uh, some writing also on the script just to make sure that we land her, all her life right. You've, you've slightly preempted me in my, on my next question because I saw on the credits that you're listed um, with some, uh, as, a, as a writer as well. For, for yourself working with the additional screenplay, what was that process like with working with um, Emma who wrote the original, screen, uh, the original screenplay? It was wonderful working with Emma and um, uh, when they, they sent me the script and we started getting money and we wanted to take the script to the next level, I started researching even more and I was so frustrated to find out that is, she was dismissed as a writer and she wasn't allowed to put her name on it. And that that point, I felt it is very much, um, I sympathize with that point a lot because I know how it hurts to be dismissed creatively coming from where I come from. I, and, and I felt it's very important to, t- to put that piece. So I reshaped the third act to include that part of her life where she struggled to put her name out there and struggled to have her voice heard. And it, it, the sad thing is it's still common that women uh, don't get uh, recognized or get appreciated. And um, so that is, for me, was a very important part of the story that really needed to be there. Because on, on one level, when you look at this as a period drama, it's very different from your previous feature. But when you sit and start to think about it, it's, it's very similar, the idea of, you know, Wajda when I seen it years ago at the Queen's Film Theatre in Belfast, it is very much a film about, a, well, in this case, a young girl, but a young girl, it's, it's more than a young girl who wants a bicycle. Yeah. And here is this sense of a woman, as you've kind of said there, very much in a man's world. And uh, I'm intrigued then with that process that how you then went about casting your Mary Shelley. How did you find or how did you come across El Fanny? Mm-hmm. I'm very drawn into films with uh, very strong female mm-hmm. characters and characters that don't see themselves as victims. Mm-hmm. I think it's enough of us women complaining and we need to celebrate women like Mary Shelley mm-hmm. who really succeeded in creating a genre and left a huge legacy in the literary world. And, a world. and I'm really, um, uh, and when they sent me the script, I was trying to figure out, and it's different, like, Casting in Hollywood is different than casting in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> casting in Saudi Arabia, we didn't have any casting directors, and we relied a lot on the word of mouth, mm-hmm. and um, most of the actors are non-professional. But here you go to all the agencies, and they present you with, like, lists and stuff. But I really, I, I was following Elle's career since Super 8, and I was really fascinated by her performance. She has this elegance and, mm-hmm. and effortless in bringing character, her characters to life. And um, I thought it's this kind of subtle, subtle performance is very important for our film because this film could tip into being melodramatic because of the loss of her, the baby and the relationship with her husband. And we wanted, I wanted someone to bring a little bit of a cinematic feel into it and not tip into kind of overperforming and taking it to that kind of drama. So Anel did an amazing job, and it was wonderful working with her, very collaborative, very professional. She's one of the best in her generation. And um, of course, I saw her in uh, Ginger and Rosa, and she was, it's a British film, and she, her British accent was amazing, so I was just like, that's it. <laughs> She's the one. You have your Mary. Um, for me, I'm also intrigued, you know, were you in any way phased by coming on to dealing with a period drama? This is very much, as I, I come back to, 
very different and a very kind of different feature. And of course, mm-hmm. filming in Ireland, filming in Dublin, you know, um, where I'm from, I'm from Ireland. So, you know, filming there, like that, the challenges that posed for you as a director, how did you find that, that process? I think it was a six week shoot. Mm-hmm. No, it was really challenging. But for me, once you get the character and understand their journeys, everything falls in place for the costumes and the hair and all that. And, um, and yeah, for example, the, the, the curls, we didn't want it to be very structured, still very period, period accurately for the period, but more flowy. And um, interesting that you said that we've shot in Dublin, yeah. because we shot in Dublin, we shot in France, and we shot in Luxembourg. And the shooting was very fragmented because the film was co-produced. And we had an amazing production designer, Packy Smith, and who like glued everything. So we would literally take, we shot all the outside in Dublin because it looks like England. And we built a studio in Luxembourg. So we shot coming literally outside in Dublin and we will finish the end of the scene in studio in Luxembourg and that was challenging visually so but also challenging with bringing the performance and uh, maintaining the same energy in the scene and um, but yeah I was surrounded with a superb people and superb cast and we all worked really hard to bring it and you can't when you see the film you wouldn't never imagine that yeah. Um, for free, I, I was reading online, doing a little bit of research, and I'd, I'd read that you had felt a, an affinity with Mary Shelley. And yeah. of course, you know, not to be cynical, of course, the film's coming out on the 200th anniversary of the release of the, of the book. I mean, for you, how important do you feel? There, there's a strong female presence, both in front of the camera and behind the camera on this, this project. Um, I know there's a female composer, um, female screenwriter, and female producers. I mean, how important do you feel it was that a woman told this story? I think it is very important, and I think it is, it is very important because you really need to sympathize with the journey of the mm-hmm. character. And it is, it is, the film is about Mary Shelley. It's not about Frankenstein. Because her book and um, the creation, like the, and the monster, took over her and overshadowed her. Like, we know about the monster. We've seen it in cartoons and pop culture. We all read the book. But how many people know exactly about Mary Shelley's life and what happened to her and how she came about to write the book? Very few. And I was a literature major, so I studied Mary Shelley, but I did not stop much at her. And I did papers about women writers, and Mary Shelley only like was in a small paragraph. So it is about time to give credit for her and to give her more, more recognition for that amazing piece of work. My last question for yourself, I mean, and this is just because it is something that's always brought up. I mean, do you ever allow yourself those moments to reflect? With, with Wajda, you were the, the first female director in Saudi Arabia. And here with Mary Shelley, you're the first Saudi, female Saudi filmmaker making a Hollywood production. Do you ever allow yourself those moments to reflect upon that? Or is that something that ever really does crop into your mind? Uh, I, I, I reflect on it. I, I, I try to leverage. <laughs> like, I'm the first female f- filmmaker. Give me a bigger film. So it is like, a, I, 
I just like, I really tried to plan my career. After I finished work and got some recognition, I wanted to make an English speaking film because I wanted to grow as an artist and not to be always seen as a foreign filmmaker. I'm making only foreign films. And hopefully like after this, we will do more. I just finished a film for Netflix. And so we will go out and do bigger films for bigger studios. And how that's how I try to, to work hard and try to plan my career to grow as an as a filmmaker, and I think a lot of women filmmakers find it difficult sometimes to break um, uh, after first or second film. They don't get to do more because there's because it is jumping that step from doing an independent film to the studio world and to doing more bu bigger budgets is always challenging. People always doubtful film of um, women as a, uh, filmmakers and directors. But the situation changing a lot now, the times of movement and all trying to create more opportunities and more and free the bed and creating more opportunities for women. Fantastic. On that positive note, thank you very much. Have a good luck with the film. Thank you. So that's my interview with Hafa Al-Mansur about Mary Shelley. The film's out in general release and should be available at your local cinema now. But we'll move on as I caught up with Adam Morse and Laurie Calvert to talk about Lucid. The film received its world premiere during this year's festival. Adam's the film's writer and director and Laurie's the film's leading man. So I caught up with them to talk about the feature. Don't underestimate the power of dreams. The sway they have over us. I just don't see how a dream can change someone's life. It's called lucid dreaming. You can go to sleep tonight and wake up and feel completely different about yourself. Dream events will be remembered as clearly as real events. Not knowing what's real. So that's a clip of Lucid, which is getting its world premiere here at the Edinburgh Film Festival. I'm joined now by the film's writer and director, Adam Morse, and its star, Laurie Calvert. Adam, I'm going to start with you. There is a lot we could talk about here, There's a uh, particularly regarding yourself. There's a lot of remarkable aspects about this film, but I want to start with talking about the film itself. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about Lucid, genesis of it, mm -hmm. and its journey from script to screen. So Lucid is a psychological thriller about a young uh, boy who... Uh, strives to become a man and he uses a experimental form of dream therapy to overcome his fear of social anxiety and it's autobiographical so it comes from my uh, experiences as an adolescent uh, growing up and finding my feet in the world and becoming comfortable in my own skin uh, all the meanwhile I was uh, learning how to lucid dream myself at that time. Because, I mean, dreaming for me, there's a, there's a lot of things in, in cinema's history, I, I think of when we think of lucid dreaming. You know, I'm a horror fan. I think of things like Nightmare on Elm Street. We think of more recently, you know, the likes of uh, Inception with Chris Nolan. And we even think of, say, like the work of David Lynch with Twin Peaks. Um, it is, I, I've, I've seen the film yesterday. I have to say I was captivated by it. I thought it was, I really, really enjoyed it. And coming back then to yourself, Laura, I mean, I was really grabbed by your performance. I was going to call you Zed as an in-joke, but then, you know, we have <laughs> Zell. Um, you kind of have almost a, a duality of performances here. We, we see kind of your, your real-life persona, who you are, and then we see this dreams, kind of dreamscape persona, and you're kind of given two very different performances. So, I mean, what for you was the biggest challenge of this role? How did you... I'm going to top-load a lot of questions here at you. Throw them at you and then come see what way they land. Um, how did you get involved in the project? And then how did you kind of take what Adam had served up on the script and bringing that to the screen? 
Yeah, I got sent the script about a year and a half ago, and um, I was just really captivated by it. And then after meeting Adam, um, it just kind of further increased, like, God, I need to work on this. Like, whatever it takes, I need to work on it. Um, and it, we kind of had discussions early on that, you know, this guy is very different to me. So, um, you know, we've really got to rework at how he moves and sounds and talks and speaks and acts and really kind of break that down. So... For me, it started with music. That was the first thing. I mean, change that music, start changing my 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 clothes, my style, my accent, and uh, over the course of about maybe about a month and a half, two months, we kind of felt we were in a place that okay, he's he's finally there. And just going back to what you said about you know, obviously him in his dream states, I I didn't want it to be a kind of Hollywood transformation. Yeah. It was important that you know he, he was still holding on to his insecurities, but it, it, this this the dream space gave him a safe place to practice it in. So it had to be enough of a transformation that, as you say, you would notice, but not something that's completely unbelievable, that the audience can go, still go, well, that's, that's the Zell we know. Yeah, yeah I have to say, there, there, it, it's, as you say, it's subtle but noticeable, definitely noticeable throughout the, the film. Coming back to yourself, Adam, I mean, you have an impressive ensemble here. You have The Phantom, you have Billy Zane in here, you have Sadie <laughs> Frost. I mean, how do you bring... How did you manage to bring those people into the project? How did they come to be involved on Lucid? Uh, they read the material and they responded. They they dug it and decided to come on board and take a chance on on on, on me and the the story, which they believed in. And it was as simple as that. And what were they like on set? I mean, I I imagine Billy Zoon. I, we have this idea of the persona of Billy Zane, and you know, I can only imagine you've been much, you've worked with him much closer than I ever uh, would. Would love to have, love to have that opportunity. But what was he like on set? He was fantastic to work with because he's so intelligent with his choices, and they're always interesting. And he kept surprising me every day, and I think me and Laurie both learned a lot from him uh, and one of the most beautiful things about uh, Billy is he keeps it fresh every time you know it's it's uh, it's 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 always new and exciting when you've got the camera on him and it's and especially with this with this performance um, Elliot always needed to have this eccentric uh, quality where you know you weren't quite sure what his agenda was and Billy is an enigmatic guy anyway but he was very off the cuff uh, and working with him was a lot of fun because you know he would be making us laugh one minute and the next second he would be really you know pulling at our heartstrings um, and there'd be emotion there on set so he was yeah, really brilliant to to be with uh, on set every day. There's some wonderful costumes on display by Mr. Zane, I, I, I have to say. And, and Laurie, coming back to yourself, the same kind of question. What was it like working with Billy Zane on screen? It was quite surreal for me because, um, you know, I'd kind of seeing him in Titanic and, you know, the rest, it was just a bit strange for me because it was, it was the first time I'd worked intimately with kind of someone of, of that calibre. So... I just wanted to be a sponge just to make sure, you know, what's he doing or what can I learn from him? And he's very patient and very generous. And it was kind of like 
working with a director and a producer and an actor and an acting coach kind of all in one and he's very kind of all encompassing he you know he's not just there to act he's he really um kind of sees the scene from all different angles so just as an actor that was really really nice to be in the presence of Fantastic. Now, Adam, I, I sense that I, I did want to bring this up. I mean, um, it was something I only found out recently. I mean, after watching the film, you are, um, you're, you're registered as oh, Brian. You you, I, I found out after. I, and I'm, I'm intrigued because, I mean, for you, because my father, my own father suffered, um, he's registered as blind. He has acute angle glaucoma and then as a result of a stroke has, has very little eyesight. Mm. I'm intrigued by this, I mean, for a first feature approaching that mm. and also... What really intrigued me when I sat down and think about it was the relationship that would that was with your your DOP and that relationship and kind of getting making sure that your vision of what you wanted the film to be like and how that relationship worked between the two of yourself. Yeah, working with Michelle um, was always going to be a win because I had made my first short film at uh, my well my short film the window before lucid with michelle so we already had uh you know this this great chemistry in shorthand and this immense trust which i think is the most important thing when you're working or when you're collaborating with artists is trust uh, especially with uh, making films and so we would uh, we had two monitors Michelle had his monitor, which is probably the standard size monitor for any, for for a director or for any set, and then I had my director's monitor, which was uh, sixty sixty five inches, I think, and um, so I would have you know my nose would be touching the screen every day, and I would be trying to you know immerse myself in every detail of the frame, but most importantly, be concentrating on the actors and uh and letting myself get into the performance and then you know go over and and uh get in and and help the talent get into whatever headspace i knew had to be the emotion for 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 for, for whatever scene you know we're on and um and it, it, you know it would i would always then say to michelle you know are you happy <laughs> how's it how's how's it looking and obviously i have partial sight so i can appreciate the photography and i can still you know have an input as well when i'm when i'm you know if i'm framing the shot if i want to swing a lens or if i want to do something different um with the image i'll i'll turn to michelle and i'll say let's try this and he'll always be open ears but yeah for me my my uh my element is working with the actors and that's where i feel like I'm uh, I'm at my best, you know, directing performance. Well, sadly, we are we are out of time, and um, there's lots more I would love to sit and pick your brains on, gentlemen. Uh, good luck with the festival, and good luck with the future of the film. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. So that's my interview with Adam and Laurie about Lucid, and we'll move on and wrap this podcast up as I caught up with Stephen Moyer and Anna Paquin to talk about the Parting Glass. I just think it's important that we all be honest with each other. It was an accident. That's what they said, right, Dad? And I'm her brother. Everything I said I meant, I'm not apologizing. Why do you think I'm here? She was my wife. She was unique. 
she was so, so smart. And so loving. When you were with her, it was like no time passed at all. So that's a clip of The Parting Glass, which is getting its world premiere at the People's Gala at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. I'm joined now by the film's director, Stephen Moyer, and Anna Paquin, who's in the feature. Um, Stephen, I'm going to start with yourself. Tell me, for our listeners, tell me a little bit about The Parting Glass. Um, It's a film about the loss of a loved one, a loved sibling. And it is... It's based on true story within Dennis O'Hare's family. And, and it's about how a family sort of deal with the aftermath of that loss. And, and sort of they go to pick up the belongings from a place called Columbia, Missouri, which is where she was living at the time. And it's the coming together of them and it's, it's about grief and loss and love and ultimately about how family knits itself back together and you know there's some humor along the way there's some tears along the way and you know my hope is that you sort of come out with a lot of questions but a lot of answers and also a little bit of hope. Anna tell me a little bit about your character Colleen I mean there's there's no way to to avoid talking about this is the character that is that that deals with suicide so tell me about her character and how you came to that role. Well we, we produced the film, so um, and had been developing it with Dennis for quite some time, and um, the actual order of, of siblings' ages in his family, um, I wouldn't have been the right age to play Colleen, and as it sort of shuffled around, uh, I'd sort of made a couple of comments about it. You know, it would be, I'd be, you know, I'd, I would like to, um, but obviously I was not the right, you know, sort of age. And then as it kind of came down to it. Um, uh, everyone kind of agreed that was a good idea, and and the thing about the thing about her is that we don't we don't really know that much about her because she's being introduced to the audience through these slightly abstract memories of each of her siblings, and each of them remember her just a little bit differently. And I think one of the things that is interesting is sort of do, how how do you ever really know what was the, the real person who they who they really were. You know, and there's, if, if you've seen the film, there's something at the very, very end that you kind of get like a, like a little glimpse into, you know, who she, who she was when she wasn't being observed by, by her siblings. Um, and it's really fascinating and, and quite beautiful and sad. I was, I was quite interested. You know, there was, there was a quite considerable amount of time where I was actually thinking about the possibility of having multiple people play that character. Um, because, you know, if, you, if we all look back at the same event, there'll be certain things that we remember differently. We might think of that person wearing different clothes that day. So we were talking about that kind of idea and possibly having a different actress even play the character because, you know, Cynthia Nixon's character might think of her in a certain way and Melissa Leo's might think of her in a certain way. So we've tried to do that, obviously not quite as abstract as that, but we've tried to sort of show aspects of her that they saw so that you as an audience get to see what you think she really was. You you have both kind of slightly preempted me because that was one of my questions I didn't want to ask you. And I mean, how did that, when you're given that performance, when you are being that, that sense of, 
someone's idea of a character rather than just kind of being a straightforward this is Colleen, it's someone else's kind of, you're watching during that, those, those flashback moments someone else's portrayal, I mean did that come into your head, I mean whenever you were filming? I think with, with like with anything you commit to the reality of the scene that you're in and in the context of this story and, and this film, there is no traceable link between the individual vignettes that you see of Colleen, really. Um, so in some ways, it was not like playing different characters, but there was some freedom to kind of just get to exist in the energy of the scene I'm in and what I'm getting back or getting from the different actors. And obviously with the ensemble that in this film being as extraordinary as it is, there's a, so much coming you know, at me that's amazing to work with and actually being able to just invest in whatever they are bringing to it. And really, my performance and my characters, they're kind of to serve their yeah. characters more. And that was quite an interesting, it's just kind of like, like quite intellectually interesting as an idea to sort of like, think about as opposed to it being having to kind of go, okay, well, this beat has to make sense because otherwise yeah. this doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't have to. Yeah. And it's just not it's just not linear in the normal way, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was also interested, um, and, and still am, and, and hope I've gone some way to sort of satisfy myself in some regards with it, with it in answer to this question, but I was interested in the idea of how guilt plays a part in grief, whether it be in the idea that, that of what you didn't do, but also what you did do to contribute toward um, the path that, that somebody that, that you love takes. You know, did I say the right thing? Did I say the wrong thing? And, and especially within a suicide, there, there is gonna be, your, each individual is gonna be left with moments of, was I there enough for that person or was I, not there at all for that person, or did that thing that I say... Was that the was thing? That, was that the thing that, yeah. that... So I was really interested in sort of following that through because, because like it or not, it's actually a, it's quite a selfish... Um, when, when you've lost somebody, it's quite a selfish emotion to, to invest into a situation, but it's also fascinating because I think we all have elements of it, um, you know, and, and the ego and... Of, of each individual and and coming to terms with loss. It's one of the elements of grief itself is dealing with one's own side of it. So, you know, it's a very complicated issue and, and I don't know over the course of 100 minutes whether you're able to, to show all of everything that I wanted to do, but certainly I think we sort of touch on it and colour into the edges a little bit, you know. You've, you've mentioned complicated and we bring into that then Dennis himself, of course, who, who wrote the screenplay based on his own experience and that personal nature there. So then, for yourselves, as, as someone who's worked with Dennis, does, then, does that then creep into yourselves on set when you're working on that, that making sure that you're bringing this project the way he envisioned and when he sat down and wrote what most surely must have been a very raw screenplay? Yeah. Um, I mean, the journey for me coming to this piece was that I wanted to work with Dennis. I, we had been working on sort of a couple of different ideas and when this one, when this, happened. when this happened and when it sort of reared itself and I felt like it would be a fascinating story to tell. 
with Dennis in particular. So, so as a director, you're left with, um, you're obviously trying to honor the dead. You're trying to honor the person whose story it is. Um, it is still a filmic exercise where the audience, you, you, you don't want to, you, you know, there were certain amounts, I, I, I was very, very set at the beginning of making it very black and comic, comic um, which, I think there is still comedy in it, but we, you know, it's it's a very difficult thing to, because our, I think my first cut was very funny yeah. in a very sort of crass way, and I had to pull back from that because it didn't feel honourable. You know, you didn't particularly like the characters because they were having so much fun, which was a really interesting. They're not having fun. But they're not just, having just fun. It it's just how it looks. And it's that thing of people laughing through their pain mm-hmm. as opposed to just sitting together and crying. Yeah. But when you bring that onto film, it doesn't necessarily come across like the way that, that you know, so it's, a, so it's how do you honour the dynamic that actually happened yeah. is not necessarily through recreating it exactly as it happened. Yeah. Sometimes the film version of something will need to be a little bit different because as an outsider, you're not going to necessarily view the behaviour in the same And way. contextually, because the audience haven't come into, into the story with the knowledge that yeah. we already have. They're seeing it for the first time, so so they're seeing those characters from a very sort of blank slate. And and so it was, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about Dennis is that, is that as strong-willed as he is, as a, as a performer and as a writer, when it comes to his own performance, he has no ego at all. And so, and so that was a really interesting thing because he he is prepared to show you ugliness, warts and all, darkness, dark thought, and and which is amazing as a director, you know. But obviously, I want people to like him as well. So it it's it, it was a real sort of uh, conundrum and a juggle to sort of try and you know because I wanted it to be real. One of my one of my I think I think it's a very true film. Not true in factually, but I think it's a very true film of emotionally and how people do feel in, in the aftermath of something like this. Um, you know, which sometimes makes it incredibly difficult to watch. Yeah. We shall have to leave it there. On that note, I shall look forward to watching the film and enjoy the rest of your time here in Edinburgh. Thank, Thank you. So much. Thank, Thank you. you. So that's my interview with Stephen and Anna, and that pretty much brings this podcast to a close. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Edinburgh International Film Festival for giving us the access to your guests. We look forward to getting back to the programme next year. All that's left for me to say now really is goodbye. But before I do, don't forget to subscribe however you get your podcast fix to make sure you never miss an episode of the Panda Flix podcast. But for now, until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>